get my Australian company to buy pencils from my uh, Bermuda subsidiary and I'll say that each pencil costs a million dollars. And now I've got uh, a million dollar pencil deductible in in Australia uh, and effectively I've shifted those profits to Bermuda. That was Andrew Lee, Shadow Assistant Treasurer and Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT. Why was he talking about million dollar pencils? It has to do with multinational tax avoidance, which is today's topic on the Monsoon Pod. I'm your host, Nanumi Stark. In today's podcast, I'll try to demystify the whys, hows and whos of tax avoidance and hopefully clarify some of the lingo being used in tax-related debates. Before we start the discussion, it is important to define tax avoidance and distinguish it from tax evasion. Here's Jim Kalaley, a former Deputy Commissioner at the Australian Taxation Office, to make the distinction clear. There is a fundamental recognised distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax avoidance is the use of legal devices to try and create an impression that the amount subject to tax is less than it really is, or that the um, taxable amount uh, was actually derived in a jurisdiction that doesn't tax it. It's a bit like a magician's trick. It's like creating an illusion. Uh, It's trying to get the tax regulator to accept that a certain level of profit doesn't exist, that you actually made less profit than you really did, or that the profit occurred in a different place other than Australia. Tax evasion is the deceitful omission of income, the overclaiming of expenses. It's basically fraudulent. So tax avoidance is legal while tax evasion isn't. After listening to the news lately, you might be wondering how paying low or no tax on billions of dollars of profit could possibly be legal. Before we answer that question, I want to take a step back and begin our discussion of tax avoidance by discussing two terms you have probably heard before, tax secrecy and tax transparency. These two tax-related buzzwords are always popping up in the news and will be relevant to our discussion today. Talking to us about these concepts is Johan van der Walt, a current PhD student at ANU's School of Regulation and Global Governance. His research interests include the shift from tax secrecy to tax transparency and the impact this shift could have on the compliance attitudes of multinational firms. Here's Johan explaining the two terms. Tax secrecy has uh, for long been regarded as a foundational element in the tax world. Uh, The reason for that is historical. When William Pitt introduced income tax in England in 1799, um, the only way in which he could get the legislation through Parliament was by keeping the tax affairs of individuals private. Um, So 300 years later, that notion is still very much embedded in the tax world, and secrecy has actually become synonymous with tax compliance. The notion that the relationship between the individual taxpayer and the tax authorities, because that is confidential, the assumption is that people would declare the tax and the income fully and completely. That notion has come under pressure of late. What we've seen is that 
I think there's a fair bit of questioning whether tax secrecy actually induces people to declare their taxes honestly. Hence, we've seen over the last couple of decades a move towards tax transparency. This is driven primarily by the G20 and the OECD, which is a 30-member organization of mainly developed countries. So what we are seeing at the moment is that the tax secrecy is being, to some degree, lifted, and it's being replaced by tax transparency, which means there's better visibility of what people are doing with regards to their their tax structuring. So we have experienced a shift away from tax transparency because multinational companies can't be trusted to comply under tax secrecy. But why can't they be trusted? Why is it that multinationals don't feel that they need to pay their fair share like other members of society? This idea of a fair share is best described from the perspective of social contract and social license, which Johan explains for us. Social contract has for long been regarded as as the basis of of tax systems. And it comes from the notion of the Thomas Hobbes idea that everybody should make a contribution to the society within which they, they live. So individuals in what Hobbes described as the natural state, everybody was basically competing with everybody. And to have a sust- sustainable society, he came up with the notion that individuals contract amongst themselves to give, give up some of those freedoms and then to have a commonwealth where there would be a sovereign which would then be able to to rule and that there would be a contribution to this commonwealth that that's the notion of the social contract now that is developed into the saying in in the US this is well known that taxes is what we pay for a civilized society so social contract is we've all got to chip in for the common good And therefore, it goes against the grain when individuals or companies are seen not to be paying what is described as a fair share towards the common purse. Um, However, where companies now live in the cloud, they've got an international footprint, they've got a diverse board of directors, they're selling their wares right across the globe. One senses that there has been a erosion or breakdown of the concept of social contract. In fact, there's a professor Desai at Harvard who refers to the decentered multinational. And with that, he means it's a multinational that doesn't see itself beholden to a particular tax jurisdiction. Um, it is Exactly like the term says, it's multinational. It lives in a number of jurisdictions. It doesn't see itself as loyal or patriotic to a particular tax jurisdiction. And therefore, tax is simply a cost. It appears that the notion of social contract doesn't resonate that strongly with those companies. However, those companies are very sensitive when it comes to social license, which is their ability to operate within a certain society or community and where they have to rely on almost the goodwill of that community or society. 
A good example of a social license that has come under threat is Starbucks in the UK. Because of their tax-aggressive behavior, uh, their coffee shops were picketed and where people actually stopped supporting Starbucks because they were seen not to making a fair contribution to the society where they were selling their their coffee. Um, And eventually, Starbucks paid a very substantial amount, not because they had done anything illegal, but it was almost for them to retain their social license. So it appears that social contract might no longer be, you know, the hook on which company hang their tax compliance. But when it comes to social license, they're very sensitive about how they're being perceived by uh, the communities and uh, the societies within which they operate. So the perceptions of the community are very important to these big companies when it comes to tax compliance, which means that tax transparency may have a role to play. We'll discuss this later in the podcast. As Johan mentioned, these multinational companies are operating all across the globe. Globalization has had huge benefits for society, but it has also ushered in an era of highly imaginative tax avoidance techniques, a lot of them using tax havens. Tax havens are countries or jurisdictions known for generating little or no tax liability, such as the Bahamas, Bermuda or Panama. My next guest is Andrew Lee. Before entering Parliament in 2010, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University. Andrew defines tax havens as follows. So tax havens are small islands that are costing us a lot of money. Um, These tax havens are typically low or no tax. Uh, They've generally been uh, pretty reluctant to share information with other uh, jurisdictions. And Gabriel Zuckman, who's one of the experts in the field, estimates that about four-fifths of the money that are in tax havens is there in breach of other countries' tax laws. They are used by uh, not just the affluent, uh, but by the super-duper affluent. So matching data from some of these high-profile leaks like the Panama Papers and the Lux leaks, um, the, one of the analyses by Gabriel Zuckman suggested that about half the money in tax havens is owned by the top one ten-thousandth of the population. So we're not talking about the top 1%, we're talking about the top 0.01% uh, that are uh, dominating tax havens. So tax havens are where tax-avoiding multinationals are shifting their profits, but how on earth do companies get them there? Here, Andrew explains transfer pricing, a tax avoidance technique commonly used by multinationals to shift profits. Well, the trick is to reduce your profits in uh, the jurisdiction with the normal rate of tax and increase your profits in the jurisdiction with the low or zero rate of tax. Uh, and that has to do with pumping up deductions in uh, Australia, uh, and so you can shift them overseas. Uh, this has been done in the past through tricks such as transfer pricing. So uh, I will get my Australian company to buy uh 
pencils from my uh, Bermuda subsidiary, and I'll say that each pencil costs a million dollars. And now I've got uh, a million dollar pencil deductible in in Australia, uh, and effectively I've shifted those profits to Bermuda. Now I've given you a silly example. Obviously, you can't exactly do that with pencils, um, but the uh, valuation of pencils is much more straightforward than the valuation of, say, intellectual property. Uh, And it's contested. So what is the uh, intellectual property value of IKEA's store layout or the the swoosh on the side of the uh, the Nike shoes? Reasonable people can differ over these these things, uh, but firms are increasingly trying to pump up the value of the intellectual property uh, royalties that they're charging in uh, advanced countries so that they can shift those profits to tax havens. Now we know what the million dollar pencils were all about. So companies are shifting profits to tax havens using techniques such as transfer pricing to avoid paying tax. How much are we talking? Andrew continues. Gabriel Zuckman, who I mentioned before, estimates that uh, globally we might be talking about as much as 40% of multinationals' profit uh, or around $600 billion of profits shifting annually. So we're talking about massive sums of money. With such large profits at stake, there can be little incentive for multinationals to comply. So who is in charge of ensuring tax compliance? In Australia, it is the Australian Taxation Office, or ATO. The ATO is the principal revenue collection agency of the Australian government and has responsibility for administering and ensuring compliance within the federal taxation system. My third and final guest is Jim Kalele, who was formerly a Deputy Commissioner in the Large Business and International Area of the ATO and is currently a Visiting Fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy. As a regulator, the ATO has a number of tools at its disposal, which Jim explains. Well, the tax office has got very significant information gathering powers, and they can be applied systematically like... uh, in the shape of the tax return form and what kind of questions get asked when, for example, companies have to file a tax return. So there's the ability to gather information to systematically do risk assessments in an automated kind of way. On a case-by-case basis, um, it has the ability to uh, request records, uh, to examine witnesses, under oath if necessary. So its powers are quite extensive. However, the ATO has experienced a reduction of over 4,400 staff between 2013 and 2017. I asked Andrew if this reduction in staff would affect how well the ATO could tackle multinational tax avoidance, and this is how he responded. It has to. Uh, The uh, notion that an agency can go after wrongdoers more effectively while you're ripping staff out of it, uh, while you've more than decimated the staff at the tax office is just ludicrous. Um, Labor has said that uh, we believe the tax office has been uh, under-resourced in terms of what it needs to do for uh, cracking down on tax avoidance. Uh, And let's not forget, Naomi, the the benefit of going after uh, tax havens isn't just in making sure we get a fair share of tax paid. It also is a way of getting to some pretty dodgy behaviour going on there. So tax havens are uh, not just havens for people who don't want to pay their taxes, uh, they're also disproportionately used by extortionists, terrorists, drug runners. Um, There are some decidedly unsavoury types in tax havens. Um, So if you uh, uh, don't like organised crime, you should be happy about a crackdown on tax havens. 
It sounds like a crackdown on tax avoidance is well overdue and curbing the use of tax havens is beneficial in numerous ways. But will cracking down on multinational companies cause firms to leave Australia and invest elsewhere? Andrew says this is not the case. Look, I don't think the main attractor of Australia uh, is that we provide uh, uniquely generous corporate tax loopholes. Um, That's frankly a pretty bad way of trying to attract corporate investment. In fact, we know that most Australian corporate investment currently comes from countries with lower corporate tax rates than ourselves. If all that mattered was the rate, then that we oughtn't be seeing any investment coming in from countries with lower corporate tax rates than ours. Um, The quality of our infrastructure, the quality of our human capital, all these things matter. Uh, And if you think you can rip away at the corporate tax base and defund schools, uh, then down the track, you're going to discover you've got a less productive workforce uh, and that there will be yet another jurisdiction around the corner, which is going to take away those footloose firms. So what are we waiting for? It's time to crack down on these companies. Despite huge staff cuts, the ATO has been working hard and has had success in making multinationals comply. Jim explains what success for the ATO looks like and brings up the example of the ATO's win in the 2017 Chevron case, which saw the American multinational oil company lose their appeal over a tax bill totaling 340 million Australian dollars. If the tax office is able to demonstrate an anomaly uh, where what is reported to the tax office seems materially out of step with the underlying economic realities... And if the tax office can explain the difference between the business processes of the group and the tax processes of the group uh, so that you can put before the court why there are additional steps in an arrangement that have no real purpose other than the minimisation of tax, uh, that to me is the, um, the way to be successful in the courts. And we've had a number of successful cases. I mean, I'm talking about the tax office's public record here, like the Chevron case. Um, I think the knock-on effects of that Chevron case will be very significant uh, because the federal court seems to be saying there that you can't manipulate debt levels and interest rates under Australia's uh, transfer pricing provisions. And and I suspect that that would have been a fairly typical strategy that multinationals would have used up to that point. Uh, So um, it would be quite interesting to see just how much extra revenue we're collecting as a result of that case, because I suspect we should be collecting a lot more. So where do we go from here? All three guests agreed that transparency has a part to play. Johan related the idea to exposing companies to scrutiny. In liberal democracies, transparency has always been seen as, you know, as the saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, The thinking is that if the behavior of individuals, companies, if it's exposed to scrutiny by other people, people will generally behave better. Um, so in tax transparency is now cottoning on to the, that notion that if we force companies to mandatory declare their tax planning, if there's visibility of the taxes that they pay, if there's visibility of their tax stratagems, they will act differently and that their tax aggressive behavior will be, be toned down. 
When I asked Andrew about tax transparency's role, he mentioned a number of policies from Labor's proposed tax haven transparency package, which includes the introduction of a public registry of beneficial ownership, mandatory reporting of tax haven exposure to shareholders, and whistleblower protection and incentives, just to name a few. However, Jim wants us not to forget that transparency on its own is not enough. Uh, I think the role of transparency is defined by the purpose of the law. Once you understand the purpose of the law and the mechanism that's used to draft the law, you'll understand what information is needed in order to determine whether tax is payable or not, whether there's a taxing point or no taxing point. So transparency in a vacuum means nothing. It has to be a a purposeful seeking of information that's relevant to identifying taxing points, quantifying the amount of profit or tax liability, um, and doing that in a way that is as systematic as possible uh, so that it's as low cost as possible for everybody involved. Clearly, this is an interdisciplinary topic with many moving parts. The depth and width of the debate is more than I can cover here today, but I hope you feel a little more enlightened about this complex and important topic. For those who want to dig a little deeper in the issue, Jim has released a working paper titled Fair Game, Is Australia Vulnerable or Getting Its Fair Share? The paper proposes a systematic approach to policy and administration, including in relation to evaluating the performance of Australia's company tax regime. Part 3 of the Corporate Tax Avoidance Report, released by the Australian Government on May 30, 2018, is also a great place to start. It examines tax avoidance and aggressive minimisation by multinational corporations operating in Australia. I've been your host, Nanumi Stark, and this has been The Monsoon Pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>